This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Zach Foss, an investor at Irenic Capital. Today, I am joined by Matt Newberg to help us break down DoorDash, the popular food delivery service. DoorDash was founded in 2013 by four Stanford students who saw an opportunity to make it easier for people to get the food they love delivered to them. Today, DoorDash's three-sided marketplace serves as one of the largest local delivery companies in the world, serving millions of customers and partnering with hundreds of thousands of restaurants across 27 countries, run rating at over $50 billion of gross merchandise value. We will discuss how DoorDash is working to build the infrastructure for local commerce, expanding its offering beyond restaurants, along with its introduction of a vertically owned convenience channel, ghost kitchens, and advertising to build a durable competitive advantage and work towards a sustainably profitable business model. We hope you enjoy this breakdown of DoorDash. Matt, thank you for joining us to break down DoorDash, a business that so many of us know and use, but people tend not to appreciate the actual size, scale, and economics of how the business actually makes money. I think a good place to start for us would be bring us through the size and the scale of DoorDash today, how big it is, the environment that it's operating within the industry, just to kind of set the table here. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. Longtime fan of the podcast and excited to do a breakdown of one of my favorite topics, which is DoorDash. It's a pretty phenomenal story of DoorDash. We're looking at a business that tripled during the pandemic. In 2020, it reached almost $25 billion of gross order value. And that has consistently grown since then. In 2021, last year, we hit about $42 billion of gross order value. And this year, they're on track to do about $53 billion. So that's 70% growth last year and 26% growth this year estimated. And from a revenue side, that looks like about $7.5 billion in the last 12 months. As far as the scale, DoorDash is currently operating in 27 countries now, very much in part to its acquisition of Walt, which closed earlier this year. They see the entire total addressable market of just restaurants, convenience, and grocery as $1.6 trillion in the US alone. And if you add in Australia, Canada, Japan, and Germany, you're looking at an additional $1.1 trillion of addressable market. That doesn't even look at all the non-food categories that they're getting into, like pet food and Christmas trees and what have you. So the short story is is that the way that they're selling it is that there's really no end to the opportunity that exists here when it comes to taking local commerce online. So to get from nothing to essentially the GMV levels they are at today, there are certainly a fair amount of trials and tribulations Take us through the history of the business and how they got going from a standing start to being synonymous with food delivery today. So I really actually love this story. And 
recently had the pleasure of listening to Stanley Tang speak at LA Startup Week. He was talking about 2012 in the era of Snapchat and a lot of social apps that were taking off, Instagram, etc. He and his co-founders really wanted to build something that touched the real world and really go from bits to atoms, so to speak. So there's this famous class called Startup Garage at Stanford. It was a mix of MBAs and undergraduates. I think Tony Chu was an MBA at the time. And you had two other co-founders, Stanley Tang and Andy Fang, who all teamed up to do a project for this class. In the class, you're basically supposed to build a startup from scratch. And it's really modeled after Steve Blank and some of the principles around customer discovery and building something that people really want by getting, quote unquote, out of the building and interviewing potential customers and trying to build something to fill a real need. They actually interviewed over 100 businesses and started asking people what were their biggest problems. I think they hit a nugget with one macaroon shop owner who basically said, I have this huge book of orders that I'm basically not able to fulfill because I'm a single person here. Sometimes if it's high enough value, I'll drive the order to the customer. But I have all this lost revenue, essentially, from my inability to deliver this. So they found this very interesting. And within a very short period of time, put up this static website, very crude, with PDF menus of various restaurants in the Palo Alto area where Stanford is. Set up a Google Voice number where it would just ring all the different founders' phones. And I think they flyered the town with this domain name, paloaltodelivery.com. So very crude website that they built in a few hours. And on the first night that they were operating this, they get a call from a guy who's actually like a marijuana scholar who lives in like the hills of Stanford named Jeremy Daw, who's an author of some book called Weed to the People. Of course, he orders the first deliveries, pad thai and egg rolls at nine o'clock in the evening. And these guys are basically trying to validate this business and they feel bad for this guy, Jeremy. They're literally about to hang up on him and say, hey, we're doing this for a class and we're just trying to validate this need. But something changes in the conversation. They're like, all right, we'll be there in 30 minutes. So they basically decide to place a pickup order from this Thai restaurant, pick it up and deliver it to this guy, collect the cash. And that was when DoorDash was really born, I think. And from that point on, they decided to, instead of actually signing these restaurants up, they would just literally put their menus up online, source these orders. They'd go to class, get a phone call every now and then, and have to basically leave to go and fulfill the orders. And I think they just got a kick out of this and they started scaling and growing the team. They get into Y Combinator. They built their first iOS app. They go from using Apple Find My Friends to track all the drivers to building out proper software to do this. They've been really great at execution, I will say. And one of the things we can talk about is they've taken a very non-traditional approach as far as how they were going to roll this out across the country instead of actually launching in San Francisco first, like many other food delivery apps did, they decided to take a different approach where they would find similar markets to Palo Alto and various suburbs, and then come back to San Francisco later. I should be candid with you in that there's been a fair amount of skepticism as to why last mile logistics would ever make for a great business. There's some debate amongst investors as to DoorDash's economics at scale, Can you take us through what an order looks like, maybe 
differentiate between a $100 order and a $30 to $50 order and who's paying what? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And it's something that's not very transparent until you actually go deeper. So on a $100 order, that's actually a phenomenal use case for DoorDash and not exemplary of a typical order, which is about a third of that. But for round number purposes, a $100 order, restaurants paying 20 to 30% commission, call it 25%. So that means that DoorDash gets to take $25 and out of that pay the dasher and keep some for itself to pay back its overhead. So that $25, let's say the driver has to make, there's all these requirements now with Prop 22 that we can talk about. Let's just say the driver's going to make a $20 minimum wage and they can do somewhere between two to three orders an hour. Let's just say two. They have to cover a $10 cost. So that means that they get to keep the remaining $15. Plus, they wouldn't have to actually pay that full $10 because the tip from that order would go directly into their pocket. So actually, in the case of this order, someone tips 10 or 15%. Obviously, 20% would more than cover the cost of delivery. And that driver could just sit on their hands for the rest of the hour. But that's a really great order for DoorDash. If you're dealing with an average $31 order, you're lucky if DoorDash is able to even make a dollar on that. So it's a very different game when we're dealing with restaurant meals. And this is why it's really important to think about new use cases for this platform, because as the cost of labor increase and the cost of food increase, the price elasticity for convenience might not look like it did a year ago. And people are only willing to pay so much as a percentage of the order towards a premium of getting something delivered. And correct me if I'm wrong, that low single digit percentage margin that you just walked us through, that doesn't include the corporate costs and overhead. Is that correct? Absolutely not. It just looks at the order level profitability. If you look at what Jim Chanos recently tweeted, he's a notorious short seller for those of you who don't know. He was showing how their per order allocated overhead costs were increasing with scale, which DoorDash has always said that they get more and more efficiencies out of their model as they continue to scale. But I think a lot of that has to do with just the sheer size of growth of this company and what they're doing with regards to international, et cetera. And now that's brought about a 6% layoff. That 3% is a blended figure across restaurant and non-restaurant. An investor I recently spoke to this morning said that that figure is that they're losing about 10% on the grocery orders and they're making about 5% on the restaurant orders which gives you a blended 3.1%. So hypothetically, they go into new markets, they spend aggressively to acquire customers, and those fixed costs in those new markets should level off over time, which somewhat begs the question, how are they going to increase the percentage margins on a per-order basis? I know they're doing a number of creative things to get adjacent revenue streams. What are some of the most promising or interesting that they've been pursuing? One of the big things is Dashmart. That's basically essentially owning your own warehouses and actually capturing the margin of the physical products themselves, as opposed to just aggregating someone else's. They've been trying to do a lot within advertising. It's unclear what exactly the impact is to the bottom line, but essentially it's the same as the Instacart model, which is why they've been so aggressively ramping up 75,000 non-restaurant merchants on their platform to essentially sell CPGs the opportunity to get people to add specific items to their cart when they're shopping at a convenience store, or grocery store, first party or third party. They also have CPG 
companies that are spending money on advertising within restaurants. So if you're buying a burger, they might show you an ad to buy Pepsi and attach that to your order. So Pepsi would be paying for that placement. And then there's a number of initiatives that have hit the graveyard, robotics, ghost kitchens, which is, I think, pretty much tapered off at this point. They're right now trying to do sort of B2B restaurant marketplace where they can sell their existing restaurant merchants on everything from packaging to produce and meat suppliers. And it's unclear how they're going to make money there. But it all signals that restaurants are a very low margin business and they need to go upstream to capture more value there. Route-based distribution businesses tend to be very good businesses. And it's generally a function of their ability together to get as many drops as possible with as high a dollar value as possible within as confined an area as they can. How does that play out in the operations of a business like DoorDash and scaling to profitability? Just thinking through the number of drops or deliveries that any particular order person needs to do during their allotted shift. This is a great question. And when I think about a business like DoorDash and its competitors like Uber, I think about a lot of these levers that they have to pull. And one of them that they talk about is gaining operational leverage through batching. Personally, I think that this is something that has some sort of threshold, like a upper limit ceiling. So typically, these platforms are lucky if they can get two deliveries per hour. One of the ways to improve that is obviously you can hold back certain orders in anticipation of more coming in to create more density. So if one order comes in at the top of the hour and then a second order comes in that's within a certain radius of the first customer within 10 minutes, the customer that ordered at the beginning might wait a little bit longer for their food so that the cost per order can essentially come down for both of those customers. These are things that DoorDash has full control over. And this is a lever that I think Uber has really played with a lot and has degraded quality to some extent because the customer that ordered in the beginning that has to wait for the second order to come in to make that delivery profitable is obviously getting a colder meal. I think DoorDash tries to take this into account and balance that against the average order value and some of the economics that we discussed before. Another way to drive that number up is to combine pre-scheduled orders like DoorDash Drive, the white label orders to essentially bring down the cost of the on-demand orders or just essentially have as much tentacles into various other channels, creating a lot of order density. So what that means is because DoorDash has this white label logistics platform that we will definitely talk about that touches everything from grocery to restaurants, it means that if someone comes on to Zach's Burger Shack and it's a first party experience, meaning it's not the marketplace, but you're using DoorDash to fulfill your delivery orders and owning your customer data that way. And then another customer comes in to order off the marketplace from a nearby restaurant or grocery store, they're able to essentially treat those like the same, even though they came from different channels because they're all being powered by DoorDash. By adding more verticals, getting into pet food, getting into convenience items, DoorDash is able to create more density, but you're still dealing with time and space here. So there's very real constraints on the number of orders you can really get a driver to do because at the end of the day, they got to go drive to all these different merchants and pick it up and drop it off. At a ghost kitchen, that is actually very different because you'll have 30 different merchants under one roof and you're able to essentially batch it all from the same place. So the point you brought up about white labeling versus first party, I think is a very important nuance. 
Can we explain what those dynamics are within the business? Both Uber and DoorDash have what is known as white label logistics. So this is a way for merchants to accept orders on their own website, get full access to the data of the customers that are purchasing on their site or app and fulfill it through DoorDash. So that's not coming in through the DoorDash marketplace. It's coming in from their own and operated ordering channels. And they have a little bit more control over the experience of the customer. But when it comes to actually fulfilling the order, it's just like a DoorDash delivery that happened on its mobile app marketplace. So this is important because I think there's been this narrative that if the majority of my sale, let's take a brand like Sweetgreen, if the majority of my sales are off-premise orders, online orders, but I only am selling it on the marketplace and DoorDash is taking a 20, 25% cut, well, as I grow my digital business, it becomes an insanely high tax for me, the business owner. One way to deal with this is to say, anybody who is my customer that's ordering directly on my website can essentially place an order. I can capture the full value. I can decide how much of the delivery cost I can pass on to them, or I can subsidize it. And it'll still get fulfilled by this network of millions of dashers out there. So it's kind of this happier medium. And I think it's something that a lot of restaurants, large and small, adopted during the pandemic when they realized that this was their only sales channel. I think before the pandemic, a lot of marketplaces were saying that the business they were bringing you was quote unquote incremental in the sense that the customer that was coming into the restaurant And spending money on a glass of wine and a full meal wasn't necessarily the customer that was coming in on DoorDash, ordering from their office down the street. That these were two complementary different occasions and that DoorDash was essentially bringing you this new customer. But when your doors are closed and every restaurant becomes essentially a ghost kitchen that's reliant fully on delivery sales, that story is very different. So 100% of your sales are off-premise, meaning people are either calling you on the phone pick up the order or they're ordering on DoorDash or Uber Eats, and you have to pay a hefty commission on that. There's very few industries where this is actually the case. And the restaurant industry got caught with their pants down, so to speak. So this was the way to avert some of those really high taxes is by essentially saying, okay, your customers are your customers. You can own the data. When customers order on the third-party marketplace, they obviously don't get to see their full name or email address or phone number, really. I think they maybe mask them with other phone numbers. Now you get the full benefit of owning your customer data and being able to offer delivery. And you can figure out how to basically take the full amount of gross profit from your sales as opposed to giving 25% to DoorDash. And so if I kind of take a step back and consider the profitability of restaurants, well-operated restaurants are probably a high teens margin the average restaurant is probably well below that. How can they afford the ability to give 10, 15, 20% of their order to a delivery service? In some cases, that's much higher. But the way to do that is to try to create another door for these delivery services to operate, meaning your front door, what you advertise on your social media, whether it's your Instagram page, your TikTok, your website, should never link to Postmates, Uber Eats, DoorDash, et cetera. Because if I do that, then I'm essentially paying a tax on the customer that I've already acquired. 
if I've gone out and marketed my business to you and I'm having you come to my website and then I have to pay a 25% commission on every order that you place, well, that just doesn't seem fair. So I think the way to think about it is how can you ensure that the customers ordering on the DoorDash marketplace are quote unquote incremental new customers that would have never found you if they weren't on this marketplace looking for lunch or looking for dinner. I think that's something that gets lost in a lot of business owners in the day-to-day of all the operations. It's a very grueling business, as you know well. And I think a lot of them overlook this nuance between how do you know who are my customers and who are their customers? The problem becomes when I'm sending my customers over to them and paying a fee for that. It's not a good trade in that scenario. And think about it this way. There's very few marketing channels for any business where you essentially pay money to advertise on that platform. And in exchange, you're essentially paying a a perpetual commission on every subsequent order for that customer into perpetuity. As long as that customer continues to order on the marketplace, I'm paying that fee. But if I can convert that customer over to my website, maybe they can pay the delivery fee and I can capture the full gross profit of that order without paying into perpetuity, this 25% tax, that significantly dings your lifetime value of your customer if they're continually ordering on this channel. And we've trained consumers they can just open up their app every time they want to order something and just reorder it on the marketplace. Businesses really need to be mindful of this and say, you can order on us the first time from the marketplace, and then maybe we'll stick a flyer inside your order for a coupon or promo to order directly on our website and waive the delivery fee or give you 50% off. And then from that point, you'll either download their app or go on their website. But it's a much different equation when you're getting them to order on the marketplace once and then on their website subsequently after versus ordering consistently on the marketplace. It reminds me of the often referred to trope that CAC is the new rent and that effectively you have to reacquire those customers from an economic perspective, every time that they go through the marketplace. So they're paying that tax that you refer to. So typically, people tend to spend a lot of time on the demand side of the platform and to extend the supply side, whereas to your point about restaurant margins being thin, they need to figure out ways to make all the numbers work. Can you help us think through a bit on the Dasher side in terms of recruitment there and the dynamics around the labor model? This has been something that I think was difficult during the peak of the pandemic. You heard on their earnings calls them talking about having to really incentivize people to really get off the couch in the era of stimulus to go out and do a dasher run because the opportunity cost was a bit higher. And now that's tapered off and it has increased some of their margins, as we've heard on the earning calls. The dasher incentives that they have obviously hit the bottom line. So one of the things you heard on their earnings calls was that they had increased retention and supply hours of their existing fleet in the recent quarters, whereas they had to invest a lot more in labor last year. So when you don't have to go out and do all these incentives for all these dashers, and you can run your algorithms to make them more efficient, it obviously improves that bottom line of the contribution profit because the main cost here is your driver fleet. And then I know there's been recent legislation in regard to treating the dashers as full-time employees. What is exactly going on with that dynamic? We kind of rewind here. 
Prop 22 in California was passed, that basically was a revision to something called AB5 that was going to originally classify any gig worker as an employee in, in exchange. It was basically a compromise that said that anyone who's in the space doing gig work that we define as gig work, their net earnings have to be 120% of minimum wage for their engaged time where they're actually on the platform. They have to earn 30 cents per engaged mile, which increased for inflation this year. And they also had to grant healthcare benefits to anyone who's working over 15 hours per week. When I've actually gone undercover as a DoorDash driver during the pandemic, I was getting kicked back an additional 17 to 19% of the tip leverage pay to just cover these requirements. So the more they can keep you doing work, the less they have to pay out of their own pocket to make these numbers work, which is not really in their favor. It's a huge headwind. So now the Labor Department is looking at this again, trying to define a test as to what it really means to be called a gig work versus an employee and where that line is. It's right now open for comment and it's unclear where this goes. If you look at tier one metros like New York, there's some very onerous legislation that's been passed there. And in 2024, I believe that minimum wage for delivery drivers is set to be somewhere around $22 an hour, which is pretty insane if you think about what that's going to do for the cost of delivery and what the customer's ultimately going to have to pay to make that all work. If you assume that on average, DoorDash's take rate is around 13%, I estimate that the consumers are going to have to get charged an additional $7 in delivery fees. So for a $31 average order, that just becomes unsustainable at best. There are a couple of unique dynamics around the business that I want to discuss in the ways that they're expanding them into adjacent markets and also helping to solve the basic unit economic challenges. One being dash marts, the other being ghost kitchens, and then the third being automation. So maybe just take those one by one about how they're impacting DoorDash. One thing I will give DoorDash a lot of credit for is their ability to experiment with a lot of quote unquote new verticals. And they're not afraid to try new things and they're not afraid to kill them very quickly. So some of the things that you've mentioned, at least two of them, are already dead, in my opinion, or they've already scaled back significantly. But at a high level, what's happening is you're seeing a shift from what we've been describing as a third party marketplace to a quote unquote first party marketplace. So first party is when I own the inventory, I own the goods, I get to capture the full gross profit of that order because I'm the merchant of record versus Zach's Burger Shack on DoorDash that's paying me 25%. Maybe I can eke out a couple more percentage points by selling stuff on my own, but I have to operate those businesses. DoorDash has taken a number of steps in these areas. And I think the most successful has been Dash Mart. And it's not 100% clear just how big Dash Mart is at the moment, because this is very competitive. You have GoPuff, you have Gorillas, Gatier, et cetera, and then a lot of players that obviously fled the market. Dash Mart started in 2020. Then the figures I was tracking is in Q1, Q2 of last year, they were at about 38 locations with this Dash Mart. And about a year ago today, they were at 60. So they were growing quite rapidly. So it wouldn't be far-fetched to assume that they're somewhere around 100 locations today, but don't quote me on that. Essentially, DoorDash began in 2020, and this is something that I discovered quickly, 
is actually under a completely different name that they were testing. But they were essentially using the data that they had on third-party convenience stores, essentially CVS, Walgreens, et cetera, to figure out what they should be actually procuring and stocking in their own warehouses and delivering on their marketplace via something they rebranded as Dashmart. So if you go into any city that has a Dashmart, and they're in quite a few cities now, I would say major tier one, tier two cities, the number one merchant that's going to come up is Dashmart. I think actually in a recent call, Tony did say that Dashmart is in the top 10 merchants in every city that Dashmart operates in. And they're not really willing to say how much GMV Dashmart is processing. I know anecdotally that they're doing about eight figures in annual sales from some of these Dashmarts in the bigger cities because they're essentially able to funnel a lot of the convenience purchases through their own stores. What this is signaling is that it's longer term, more sustainable to sometimes own and operate everything from an end-to-end basis than it is to sit on top of an existing merchant. And that's just because of a couple of things. There's a lack of inventory clarity of what's on the shelf. The customers are having to deal with a lot of -of out-of-stocks and you don't have full transparency into exactly what's going on inside the four walls of that business. There's sometimes not enough margin for some of those items for these merchants to really want to work with a third party. So they have to either increase the prices or charge the customer additional fees on the marketplace. There's a lot of gig economy, regulatory red flags and laws that have already been enacted that are going to make it increasingly more difficult for gig workers to be picking up meals from restaurants or items from your local CVS and delivering it to you. So this is kind of a hedge against the future of that, in my opinion. Great. Well, that's super helpful in trying to appreciate how Dashmart helps their business. What about the opportunity in ghost kitchens? First, maybe just explain what a ghost kitchen is. And then second, why it made sense and may not make sense for DoorDash to backward integrate into that. Ghost kitchens, the easiest way to describe it is they're kitchens that are purpose-built for delivery. There's no dining room, so you have lower overhead, but you lack the foot traffic of a traditional brick-and-mortar restaurant. You can fit more kitchens on a plot of land within a single roof that would traditionally be allocated towards foot traffic. So the bet is that as more and more people order food online, it doesn't make sense to have big dining rooms because the utilization of that is a lot lower and you're paying a premium for rent when a lot of your sales are just going out the back door for delivery and pickup. So the question that people like Travis Kalanick, the founder and CEO of Uber, asked was, what would the world look like if we transformed physical real estate assets into this new on-demand economy? The existing world around us is not built and designed and optimized for this world of delivery. When you have a restaurant that's operating a dining room and then operating a delivery business, at some point, one begins to degrade the quality of the other. So then you start to say, okay, well, what if we just design kitchens that would fulfill these orders, kind of like an Amazon fulfillment center, but apply that concept to the world of restaurant delivery? And I saw this and I said, holy crap. This is going to transform the way that restaurants operate because you have to rethink everything from scratch if you're going to build something that's going to work purely for delivery and maybe some pickup. 
So essentially what's become the norm is with this company, Cloud Kitchens, which is the biggest company on the market internationally, and they have a presence in almost every continent, is 20 to 30 or sometimes even more kitchens under a single roof and tens of thousands of square feet where you're just basically putting these little 200 square foot kitchens next to each other and having somebody sit at the front of the house, bagging these orders, marshalling them from the back of these various kitchens and bringing them to DoorDash drivers. I was just at one over the weekend. It was actually a drive-through location where the DoorDash drivers could essentially pull into an alley in downtown Los Angeles and just pull up to the window of a freestanding kitchen that's just lining an alley. So all these shipping containers, essentially, and there's no seating at any of these locations. And they've started to actually add on food halls, which basically signals to me that there's just not enough demand right now from pure delivery to make a lot of these tenants successful. This also gets conflated with virtual brands, which is another thing we can talk about that DoorDash is actually investing in, which is brick and mortar restaurants that are fulfilling additional orders from brands that are not owned by them. So they're essentially becoming virtual franchisees of some random Mr. Beast Burger or another celebrity brand. All of this signals to me that they're looking at the sustainability of the third-party model. Some of the crazy premiums that people are paying, somewhere between 40 to 50% in some cases, to get their food delivered and saying, how do we make this a better business model? Because at the end of the day, DoorDash only takes about 3% profit margin, which is basically equivalent to some of the traditional stodgy grocery stores out there from all of these orders on a blended basis. If they become the merchant of record and integrate everything end to end, can they A, increase the quality of the experience for customers because nothing's getting quote unquote lost in translation on these tablets that are buzzing about in the restaurant and things that are out of stock, that they're able to have more visibility into that, to the logistical side and the quality side, improve the quality while also improving their bottom line over the long term. And this is a whole new muscle for them because it actually involves hiring people to stock warehouses in the case of Dash Mart and grocery. And on the restaurant side, it requires them to hire cooks in the kitchen and figure out how to get into all these very complex operational aspects of cooking food. And most tech companies that we've seen have an insane amount of growth, bar Amazon, have achieved scale by being quote-unquote asset light. And this is a whole different model that is saying, we're going to actually, in some cases, even own the dirt of these ghost kitchens and own some of the concepts and really start to vertically integrate, which to me signals that this is such a low margin business with rising costs that we need to think of some way to increase profitability. But DoorDash isn't actually doing the full Travis Kalanick kitchen model. They were basically leasing kitchens and trying to learn how to do this in some capacity and have basically scaled back significantly. And I kind of talk about what their future strategy is going to be. So you mentioned that there needs to be ways to take costs out of the ecosystem. To what extent have they pursued automation as an opportunity? They acquired a company called Chowbotics. The idea was going to be that if you operate a convenience store with demand for healthy salad bowls near you, that they would be able to essentially 
install one of these crude robots. It's like a flapper plastic wheel that's motorized that's just dispensing various ingredients into a bowl. And a DoorDash delivery driver could pick it up inside of a nondescript fuel convenience store and deliver it to someone nearby. And that would essentially create more supply closer to the customer and do it with pretty much zero labor. So on paper, you look at these things and say, okay, this makes sense. At some level, this will have a payback. And you're essentially creating a restaurant within a restaurant. But as it turns out, I don't think that's how consumers really want to interact with their food. They don't want some random brand popping up on their DoorDash app that's selling them a salad. And they look at the address and it's coming from some random building that doesn't even have a kitchen that's getting stocked every couple of days with random Cisco conventional chicken and all these other products. So I think they ended up shutting that down fairly quickly when they realized they needed to trim some of the fat. But that's another signal to me where they're trying to get further and further up the chain. And they've also done things like try to offer some of their restaurant merchants wholesale partnerships with various distributors to start to go further upstream. And maybe even one day they become somehow deeper integrated into the wholesale side of this to drive costs down. So all of this is about the various rising costs of rent, of labor, and of food. If we look at those three different cost centers of a restaurant, they're trying to use technology to wield their way in and figure out where there's inefficiencies. And you really can't be everything to everyone. And I think they realize this in some of their experiments and have scaled back drastically by shutting down the automation project and laying off the chatbotic staff, I believe. And then on the ghost kitchen front, I don't believe that they're signing any more leases for ghost kitchens and then essentially giving them to merchants in exchange for a percentage of their revenue on the back end, which is what they were doing. So I think now for them, they're sitting on a treasure trove of data of what customers want, and they're starting to figure out how to create a marketplace of virtual brands and quote unquote host kitchens, which are existing kitchens that can fulfill some of these orders. Yeah, you mentioned virtual brands a handful of times, and I think it's important that you clarify what those are and some of the benefits, but also controversy around them. Virtual brands, this actually really took off December around the holiday season 2020, the height of COVID. I remember a lot of restaurants were closed. So the idea was, how do we take existing restaurants that have a lot of excess capacity and give them, quote unquote, content, new brands for them to fulfill using the exact same ingredients that they're already stocking in their kitchens? So a brand that they wouldn't associate necessarily with that restaurant that's fulfilling it, but just something, a new brand. So you're essentially creating two restaurants out of the same brick and mortar, four walls of an existing restaurant and make line using the exact same staff. You're just giving them more orders. In this case, it's very clear to say that these orders are incremental. So if I keep going back to Zach's Burger Shack is listed on DoorDash and you start cooking Mr. Beast Burger... You might not have to change pretty much anything you're doing differently than your packaging to sell Mr. Beast Burger, but you might be able to grow your sales by a few thousand dollars per month. And the question is, if you sign up to cook some of these third-party brands that you don't own, but you're getting told, cook this recipe and you're getting this packaging, it's being sold under another name, is that juice worth the squeeze? So the way that it basically works is, at the end of the day, a restaurant gets to keep 
something like 55% of the cost, but out of that, they have to pay for all the food and all the packaging. And then the rest of it basically goes to the delivery company and it gets also shared with this new franchisor entity. So some of these that have popped up, for example, are virtual dining concepts, Nextbyte, which is owned by Ordermark, C3 by SBE. And what they're all doing is essentially they're modern restaurant brands. So they're essentially creating concepts that work really well on social media to promote, using influencers to brand a menu like a Mr. Beast who's got tens of millions of followers on YouTube. And then finding local restaurants that are near those fans to essentially fulfill orders for essentially the same product that a restaurant would already be selling, but just packaged slightly different and called something else. When restaurants had their dining rooms closed, this was a very fascinating thing for them to entertain because they didn't have to really train their staff to do much to make a Mr. Beast burger. It seemed like low risk. But now that dining rooms have reopened and the pendulum's swung back the other way in terms of in-store versus off-premise, it's becoming less of something that restaurants want to invest in because they're realizing that some of the quality of these brands are kind of low, that sometimes they have to deal with a lot of issues with the delivery companies, getting complaints about slow delivery times and things that are outside their control and just adds additional complexity that isn't really worth it when you think about the incremental food costs and potentially the incremental labor costs to fulfill those orders now that those employees have other things to do. So what DoorDash has basically done is say, we're going to go to brands like Milk Bar that have cakes and cookies and maybe things that don't require actual prep and say, we'll find restaurants that are able to stock these cakes in their fridges and fulfill it for customers that want to order a birthday cake last minute and get it in 30 minutes. And that's where they're transitioning their kitchen initiative to. It's this idea of asset light marketplace of brands on the supply side that have products that have demand for same day on-demand delivery at certain average order values. And then restaurants with extra extra space in their kitchens that could essentially fulfill these orders and make it a win-win scenario. I guess given the difficulties in making all the numbers square in regard to what DoorDash looks like in a post-COVID, post-demand world with potentially more elasticity of demand, how vital is the success of advertising? And what are some of the angles with which they're trying to sell advertising to their customers today? They've been really tight-lipped on this because I think it's where the future is going. If you look at a business like Instacart, it's pretty clear that they're going to try to run their business at contribution profit break even and make all their money on ads. That's just where all the good stuff is. If you can sell something to CPG and influence a purchase decision further down the funnel. What we've seen with DoorDash is a self-serve product. I haven't dug into it myself, but they have a legacy platform that allows restaurants to spend more money to promote themselves. That business is probably not doing so great in an inflationary environment where businesses already have to mark their stuff up to really high levels just to pay their commissions. Increasing the amount of money that you pay to DoorDash to generate more sales is just not going to be worth it if they're going to be taking the same commission off of those sales. So it's really not a very sustainable business model on that side. The CPG side is a lot more nascent. It's unclear to me how those deals are getting done and who's actually spending money on the platform. But I think a lot of what has been happening over the last two years 
is a sprint into newer verticals for the right for them to start to squeeze more juice out of that business at some point in the future where CPGs can spend money there. And I estimate that if you take all of the money that CPGs traditionally spend on slotting fees and offline grocers and all the other channels that they spend money on, this is a $250 billion opportunity in the US alone. This is a massive opportunity that Instacart and DoorDash and Uber are going to compete head to head on. Just from a first principles perspective, when I consider advertising within the DoorDash app, effectively, they know who I am and my purchase behavior. I show some intention. Let's say I search for cheeseburger. Someone's going to pay effectively to be put at the top of the list. Is that the way to think about it? That's from the restaurant side of that. And then if you think about the CPG side, it's I'm searching for ground meat for dinner tonight while I'm looking at a nearby grocery store or I'm shopping on Dash Mart, which is more convenience items. And Momofuku ramen kits are going to show up number one when I type ramen because there's a promotion going on there. So those are the kind of differences between the restaurant side and the CPG side. And I'm just flagging that the CPG advertising business is a much bigger opportunity because there's an actual profit pool to go after when it comes to the CPG's ability to spend money on marketing versus a restaurant that's getting squeezed from every direction. For the benefit of the audience, so much of the margin at grocery stores today are what are called trade spend or slotting fees, which effectively are the large consumer packaged goods businesses paying the grocery store to put their product in preferential shelf space. Yeah, absolutely. So Instacart's running full speed ahead, translating this over to what this looks like in a virtual shelf. So I think this is what DoorDash wants to do. They recently said that their non-restaurant and international GMV grew faster year over year versus their traditional restaurant marketplace, which is a lot more mature. While they're losing probably double-digit percentage on every order of those non-restaurant orders, the opportunity to get that back to something that is break-even plus add on this massive opportunity for ad spend and the shift to digital online grocery is where they're betting that the profitability comes from in these investments. Well, Matt, this has been a fantastic summary of DoorDash, an incredibly complex and sophisticated business that's risen above the rest in its competition set of food delivery and now broader delivery. When you study this business, what are the lessons you take away from operators and then also for people that are looking at these businesses as potential investments, the lessons that they can learn? Yeah, I think it's fascinating that this company has been able to execute so well for so long. Well, I think there's just a number of really big headwinds. They're giving me a lot of different questions. But at a high level, they're saying consistently that DoorDash is never a food company. They never really were that excited about food. They wanted to use technology to enable local businesses to thrive. And it just so happened that all roads led to delivery. The idea that they could be everything to everyone is really difficult. If you think about expanding from delivery into other loyalty-driven things or being able to give every restaurant a white-label direct channel that they're going to be able to get into grocery and all these non-food items, and that they're going to be able to essentially fire on all cylinders and execute perfectly on all these different initiatives. The surface area becomes just way too large. Right now, the average order size being $31, 
it's just a third of what Instacart is doing at best. And you think about the profit that they're generating at 3% across all these different verticals, losing double digit percentages on the grocery side and making about 5% or so on the restaurant side. I don't see really how this becomes a much better business than it is today, given all the rising costs and all the uncertainty when it comes to the regulation. Like I said before, it's going to get to $24 in New York City. That's actually the figure for minimum wage in 2024. That's going to mean that the average driver that's going to spend 15 minutes delivering your food, then going back to another restaurant, doing another order, and then driving to the next or cycling to the next restaurant, that means they can do about two drops an hour. It's going to cost $12 per order for DoorDash to fulfill anything in New York City. And other metropolitan cities are going to really take note of what's happening in New York and probably adopt similar legislation. This is all going to mean who's going to pay this check at the end of the day. And I think given where we are from a macro perspective, when it comes to restaurant delivery, this is going to be a really tough thing to continue. And it's going to force them further and further up the chain, which is not their core competency. So you really scratch your head and say, well, what does this mean from a consumer expenditure standpoint? Are consumers going to spend less money on restaurants versus grocery? Are they going to treat going out to restaurants more like a luxury and do less restaurant delivery on the nights where they would normally have done it and just cook at home? Jury's still really out on that. But one thing is for certain, which is that there's no way to really make the math work if the cost of food goes up, the cost of labor goes up, and you have continued regulation across the entire world. We're seeing this play out in all parts of Europe, recently in Australia, and of course here at home. So I have a lot more questions than I do answers, unfortunately, but I'm very excited like many other people to see what the role of this all is because it is obviously a very valuable service to consumers. The question is just how much are people willing to pay for it? Matt, thank you for joining us to break down DoorDash. It seems that the pandemic helped to accelerate the growth of the business and that it's settling in to a two to three player market While questions remain regarding the structural profitability of food delivery, the innovative approach that DoorDash is taking to verticalize and horizontally grow their marketplace makes for a fascinating case study. Thank you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 